from KQED. Hey, this is Queued Up, Storytelling with Heart. I'm John Sepulveda, and this is our very first installment of our very first story series. It's called American Suburb, and it's about the flip side of gentrification. Here it is. From San Francisco Drive East, over the Oakland Hills, beat traffic through Walnut Creek to Highway 4, Pass new houses being built off to your right and drive until you reach some box stores. You're here. Antioch. A lot of people are heading out to the suburbs. Some by choice, but others are being forced out because of rising costs in the city. It's not just happening in the expensive Bay Area. It's a phenomenon happening in Seattle, Atlanta, Chicago. This new suburbia makes places like Antioch a staging ground for a sort of accidental integration. This story goes back 10 years to the moment when that unexpected integration pitted neighbor against neighbor, battling each other for who belonged in suburbia. I'm Devin Kadiyama. And I'm Cynthia Dirks. Chapter one, the tipping point. Donna Wilson wants to show me her favorite neighborhood in Antioch. It's raining as we get into her SUV. We're gonna take a stroll down Shannondale. And Shannondale is the street in Antioch in a a little subdivision that had the best absolute Christmas decorations I've ever seen. Even though it's just a couple of neighborhoods away from where she lives now, Donna Wilson hasn't been back to Shannondale Drive for years, since after the recession. Not since the reality of underwater mortgages, foreclosures, and families falling apart. This house right here Um, I think this one was like a Toy Story house. And if you look, it's a double story. They had um, toy soldiers pretending they were coming in and out of the windows. Donna Wilson says when she moved to Antioch in the late 90s, it was her dream to live on this block. Shannondale and Antioch had that suburban promise of quiet, safe streets and neighbors you wanted to know. Cars would literally park along the street and in the driveways and in the cul-de-sac there. And every single one of these houses, like that house right there, they always had a card table and they would hand out hot chocolate to all the walking families. Donna's the kind of woman who gets emotional about the past. To her, Shannondale is about belonging. She's a self-described Air Force brat. Her family moved around a lot as a kid. She eventually ended up here in Antioch, where the rent was cheap and where she and her longtime partner and father of her kids could raise children. Donna still tries to fight that sense to pick up and leave, and she wants different for her kids, which is why she's staking ground in Antioch. They were never the new kid in school. I was, and I didn't like it. So for right now, I know that I was able to give them something that I wasn't able to have, and that's a foundation of stability you know, a presence, um, and to be able to have lifelong friends. It's a great feeling to have. It's a great feeling to belong. Everyone has a different story about what started it, the problems, what they think the tipping point was. When the tensions around the changes out here, the growing diversity, the booming population sort of erupted when neighbor turned against neighbor. What was clear was more and more black people were moving into subdivisions like Shannondale. Many of them were buying their homes. A lot of them were renters moving into homes that had been built from middle-class homeowners. Some of those renters 
were using Section 8 affordable housing vouchers. If you talk to Charles Glasper with the county NAACP, his tipping point was a doctored photograph. It started with a woman by the name of Kirby Bell. Kirby Bell was a Section 8 recipient who lived at a home, but her neighbor had an expensive motorcycle and an expensive car. Someone took a snapshot of her neighbor's uh, vehicle and motorcycle and cut and pasted it in her garage and then ran this issue that this woman is on Section 8, has this expensive motorcycle, an expensive car, ran it in the newspaper, and that sort of got the ball a-rolling. The implication was that Section 8 recipients were gaming the system. They could afford high-end vehicles, but were living in nice homes on the government's dime. And even though that photograph was photoshopped, a sort of fake news, Kirby Bale would end up losing her Section 8 voucher and her home. I mean, 2007, 2008, this was, a, this was a war zone. Charles is sitting with Willie Mims, another longtime leader of the regional NAACP. They were going to do everything possible to rid this city of, of Section 8 people. Both Willie and Charles live in Pittsburgh, one town over. Pittsburgh had been integrated, but for Antioch, it was all new. And there was constant scrutiny on these newly arrived black families, says Charles. And it became so bad that even though I'm, I'm a Section 8 recipient and my kids could be in the backyard playing basketball, they would call a report, hey, they're in the backyard playing basketball. They're creating too much noise. Mm-hmm. And they would come. The police. The police yeah, would come yeah. to the house. Willie says it was pretty clear that Section 8 was code for something else. And some of those people that you know, they called on weren't even Section 8 folks, but, but they were African-American. So they assumed that everybody, everybody black out there was, uh, was a Section 8 recipient, which they were not. See, that's the mentality that we were operating under. You know, and it, was, it, was, it was a mess. The story that older homeowners told, both black and white, was that their new neighbors, the renters, were downgrading property values. It's not a new story. It's like what happened with white flight from cities in the 50s and 60s. Now, history was repeating itself in this suburb, but in a different way. What happened is that, you know, you have the Section 8 recipient, and then you have the neighbor that's uh, commuting to work, and he's leaving the house early in the morning, say, wait a minute, ain't nobody leaving the same time I am. As if they were saying to themselves, wait, I'm commuting two hours to work each way, there and back. Why is my neighbor just sitting at home? Their rent paid for by the government. It didn't feel fair. And that sort of pitched neighbors against mm-hmm. each other. Those houses were immaculate houses. You look at those houses, five bedroom houses, immaculate house. So it wasn't that they were run down or the recipient, right. section eight recipient, were, uh, were uh, devaluing the property, not keeping the property up. That wasn't the case at all. But other residents like Donna Wilson saw a different picture, one that didn't match the picture of what attracted them to the suburbs in the first place. Donna saw unkept yards, broken down cars in driveways, trash piling up. It bothered her that her neighbors in Antioch used government money to live in homes they didn't take care of and used food stamps to pay for stuff she couldn't afford. That's frustrating. It's frustrating as it is to be in the grocery store on the first of the month and I'm buying enough food for me to make two meals, and I got a person in front of me with three baskets full of food. I wish I could feed my family like the way you, you know, and then I look in the basket, and I'm like, chips, soda, crabs, 
salmon. I'm like, wow. <laughs> Donna says she didn't care if somebody was poor or rich or black or white. It was this culture clash, the behaviors, the newcomers who didn't respect the suburban lifestyle. It wasn't necessarily about race. It was more like attitude and that lack of respect. You know, I can't stand that you'd even be in a grocery store and the person in front of you, a kid or whatever, is on their phone. You know, I don't need to hear someone's conversation. Um, I don't, if you bump into somebody, say, excuse me, say, please have manners, pull up your pants, (laughs) you know, uh, wear something besides your pajamas when you go to the grocery store, you know. A lot of people will tell you that the suburbs got more urban. The people who did move in were people of color and many did come from cities. And some of them did behave differently than people were used to. But when crime shot up in Antioch, crime like assaults and robberies, all these small differences, they took on real meaning. New tonight at 8, people in Antioch are talking about how to tackle a growing crime problem. Deadly shooting this morning in Antioch. Well, the city of Antioch, like many other cities in California, doesn't have a lot of extra money to hire police officers or provide additional services. In 2006, violent crime would rise nearly 20% from the previous year. And the next year, violent crime would continue to rise another 30% on top of that. And police were saying more crime was happening in the newer, wealthier part of town, the southeast. That was going to be true for Donna. Everything changed for Donna the night her son, who was a freshman at Deer Valley High School, went to the opening night football game against Berkeley High. This was her tipping point. I dropped him off. And I was going to come back and pick him up about 9.30. So at 9.30, I drive over to the school, and the parking lot is packed. People everywhere. I'm calling him. Obviously, it's so loud. He never heard the phone ring. And I got frustrated and mad because he wasn't supposed to be where he was supposed to be. And so I went back home. And a few minutes later, his friend called that he was with and said, Donna, you have to come. Trevor just got jumped. And I said, yeah, right. He needs to come home. I drove all the way over there and, you know, he didn't answer the phone. He goes, no, Donna, seriously, you've got to come. He's bleeding. He's really bad. The police are on the way. And I panicked. And I get there and uh, he's laying on the ground and his head is just full of blood. And people are, are crowding around him and the police are pulling me away from him because they didn't want him to see me cry. And I'm like, who who did this? Who? And I'm, I'm looking at all these people that are just standing there. And I'm thinking, did anybody see anything? Her son Trevor was taken to the ER. In a picture Donna shares of him in the hospital, there's dried blood caked across his face and he's wearing a neck brace. He turned out to be okay. Some money was stolen, his necklace was stolen, his phone was stolen. The local news reported that two of the attackers were black. One of them had dreads. They both had grills. Donna's son is and looks mixed race, but the attack heightened an already tense racial narrative that black students were engaged in crime near Deer Valley. We're going to hear from one of those students who was targeted as a criminal by the town. But his story is a lot more complicated. Stay with us.
It's a brisk late morning as I climb the stairs to the front door of Diarmond Ellis' house. He doesn't live in Antioch anymore. Now he's living south of San Francisco with his grandparents. And I've been searching for him for almost six months. Hi, I'm looking for Diarmond. What you want? I'm a reporter with KQED. Um, and I was talking to Diarmond on the phone yesterday. Um, I'm working on a story about Antioch, actually. Thank you. His grandfather opens the door. Welcome to the Ellis's. Diarmond's asleep on a plush chair in the living room. He worked the graveyard shift stocking shelves the night before. I'm so sorry to wake you. He's 26, average height, with a crooked, shy smile. I'm good. How are you? He goes to the kitchen to grab some coffee. Uh, would you like some I'm perfect. grew up with his family, bouncing all around the bay. But he remembers Antioch, where his dad bought a house, as a quiet and kind community. Even the cops. When you got in trouble, they used to bring you home. <laughs> like, literally, like, when we got, I got uh, trespassing or something when I was, when I was a kid at, at the movie theater. And they actually took us to the house and handed us over to our parents. Doesn't that sound like the suburbs? Catch some kids mildly misbehaving, you drive them home. Diarmond left Antioch for a bit, but about a decade ago, he had just started as a junior at Deer Valley High. He was excited. Deer Valley was a good school. When I went to Deer Valley, it was like watching uh, one of the high schools on TV. It was so big. It was it was a trip. It was it was a fun experience for the little bit of time I was there. But yeah, unfortunate events, you know. Those unfortunate events would come fast and furious. A classmate of Dearman's, a kid everybody called Bird, was shot near the movie theater. The city put into effect an 11 o'clock curfew. Dearman didn't think it was going to work. This is Dearman back in 2007 at an Antioch City Council meeting. And, uh, I believe this curfew is not going to help the violence because all the shootings that we have approached today, they all have happened before 11 o'clock not after. We should put more police out there rather than tell kids they gotta leave earlier. And that's my thing. Thank you. He wanted to be safe. Still, a 16-year-old asking for more police in his neighborhood? Maybe not what you'd expect. And when officers did enforce the curfew, it wasn't what DeArmond expected either. The curfew was, was more of a way just to harass us rather than to make it a safer place, I guess you could say. Because it wasn't, they weren't messing with none of the, excuse me for saying it, but none of the white kids. They weren't getting hit for no curfew. It was just us um, mixed kids, I guess you could say. So it, it sucked. <laughs> Definitely sucked. It is possible the police were pulling over white kids too. But it didn't seem that way to Diarmond. He began to feel police weren't really on his side anymore. The violence hit Dearman too. I mean, hit him. He was at a birthday party at the water park across from Deer Valley High School when he was shot in the left shoulder and right thigh. It was a drive-by shooting. It actually didn't hurt as much as I thought it would initially. The next day, yeah, definitely, you could feel it. What hurt him more, he says, was the fact that the town seemed to blame him. Rather than seeing him as a victim, he felt they saw him as the problem. They would try to... He was even me uh, getting shot as an excuse of why Antioch was so bad. You know, they kind of said the young mentality out there was the reason for all, I guess, the property going down. And there was a lot of robberies out there. I mean, Antioch got bad after 
after a while, but there's nothing to do out there. There's nothing in Antioch besides the movie theater and golfing games. So they didn't, it's not really friendly to the young folks. All of this reached a fever pitch in March 2007, just a couple of months after he had been shot, in an incident that came to be known as Gas City, after the gas station where it all went down. Even after all that had happened before, Gas City was Diarmin's true tipping point. A bunch of teenagers were walking home from school. They cut through the strip mall across the street from Deer Valley High, the one with the Taco Bell, Burger King, Food Max, and movie theater. There had been complaints about kids, especially African-American teens, blocking cars and bothering shoppers. So police were often there too. And that's kind of their reason for, I guess, harass, starting harassing us, because they kept telling us to get on the sidewalk, but there's no sidewalk. And a patrol vehicle just turned up and, and told them to get on the sidewalk. And one of my clients said, Sidewalks over there pointing to like the sidewalk 50 yards in front of him. And so how am I supposed to get from here to there, <laughs> right? That's Jivika Kandapa, a public defender turned civil rights lawyer. So they continued walking and the police officer followed them again and said to get on the sidewalk. It's like, yeah, I'm getting there, but not there yet. And so the, the car kept following them, and then the officer stopped his vehicle at some point and came after them with the baton. So one of my kids started running because he was afraid. Now there's this officer with the baton chasing him. Everyone, including Diarmond, ran towards what was happening, from between 25 to 50 kids, depending on who told the story. School had just gotten out. It was crazy. It was just like a wave of people. I was, it's like sardines moving at first and then next thing you know just a bunch of police just came out of nowhere like you could tell they kind of had that set up like planned almost and then somehow everybody ended up at gas city they came to be known as the gas city seven seven kids all deer valley high school students all of them black taken into custody by antioch police they just chased me and tackled me but they pepper sprayed somebody they beat somebody with a billy club and I think um, Mike, Michael got his arm broke, I believe. There's video of this. Jeremond was just watching, standing next to his buddy, who was filming the scene. He believes that's why the cops targeted them. He remembers an officer saying, get the video. Police would later say the young people were blocking the street, defying direct orders to move, and that Jeremond attempted to cause or threatened to cause physical harm by running away from the officer. And he did run, he admits. He says it was instinct, PTSD from being shot just two months before. I was arrested, taken out to the station. My parents had to come get me. And then when I showed up to school, I actually went to school the whole next day. And then during my last period, I got called out and was told that I was being expelled from school for the incident that happened the day before. That's when Diarman's dad found Jivika's name and called him asking for help. They had the video, and although Diarmid was arrested for resisting arrest, he wasn't charged with anything. They thought, okay, these are poor kids, poor families, they're not going to fight us, we can do what we want. And basically the idea was, we get you out of the school district, you have to leave Antioch because you've got to go to some other school district. Jivika started to suspect the story of the Gas City 7 might be connected to something bigger. That, that was a strategy to drive as many African-Americans out of Antioch. 
Diarmid was in shock. Even after being shot, he still believed in Antioch. You, you wasn't expecting the cops to harass people like that. But I guess they had a, a reason for doing what they're doing. Not saying it was right, but, you know, that's when racism, you could tell. was that. I, I never experienced racism like that, honestly. You know, you hear about it, but when you see it directly, that was, it was something different. You know, it was an experience. Dearman says he owes Jivika a lot. Jivika Kandapa, a Sri Lankan immigrant who started off as a public defender in the county. A public defender who came to believe something was rotten in the Antioch Police Department. He was barely a month into private practice when he took on Dearman's case pro bono. He didn't yet know that would mean defending Diarmond at an expulsion hearing in the auditorium of the Antioch Unified School District, a scene he describes as a kind of kangaroo court. There were these 20 police officers in full uniform at the back, show of force. And I'm thinking to myself, this is an expulsion hearing. The police officers are not at, on trial. Why are you guys here? And, so, and also, it, I think they did that because they did not want those officers who attacked those kids and pepper sprayed those kids um, cross-examined. So they were there to intimidate. Jivika would keep fighting for three of the kids who were expelled, three of the Gas City Seven. Eventually, they would file a civil rights lawsuit. But at first, he was just trying to overturn the expulsions. Then something weird happened. He called one of the kids' mothers to update her on the case. I asked her how she's doing, just checking in with her, and she said it's been tough because she's been living in her car and she has no place to rest away. What happened? And then she told me what happened with her Section 8 voucher. And she, I, didn't, I didn't know about it. I said, that's insane. I'm going to represent you. Her Section 8 voucher had been revoked, but he says without a proper appeals process. And as he began to look into it, he became convinced the city of Antioch was trying to evict black people living in subsidized housing and that the Antioch Police Department was targeting black kids and getting the school to expel them in order to do it. The police, the city, and the Antioch School District would all deny this. Donna Wilson says she knows what racism looks like. Even though she's white, her partner and the father of her two kids is mixed race. She shows me a picture of him. His name's Jason. Donna says Jason is part white, part black. But you know, if he takes his shirt off, he's as white as you and I. That's him right there. But you wouldn't know that. But I've been with him in situations where um, he was forced to lay down on the ground with a gun drawn on him because he fit the description of somebody robbing a store in the mall. That was not here, of course. <laughs> Donna says there have been times when Jason's been treated differently out here by Antioch police. She says one time Jason was pulled over by this cop, and at first the cop had this attitude. Once the officer found out he knew Donna, the officer's demeanor changed completely, and Jason was let go with a warning. She admits that this has changed her perception of police over the 26 years she's been with Jason. But even after seeing these things, Donna trusted the Antioch Police Department. About a week after her son was attacked, Donna is sitting at home when someone calls. I answer the phone and identify, you know, yes, this is Donna. And, and this gentleman on the phone says, my name is Jim Hyde. I'm the chief of police. And I freaked out because I'm thinking, why is the chief of police calling me? What did I do? I'm home. Why are you calling? And uh, he said that he heard 
about what had happened and that he wanted to give me his personal guarantee that he is going to do everything he can to find out, you know, who did this. And I was just speechless, you know, to have somebody in a position such as that to reach out to me. It meant everything. Chief Hyde wasn't the only one who reached out to Donna. The leader of a neighborhood group did too. This group was called United Citizens for Better Neighborhoods. And its members wanted the same thing that Donna wanted. They wanted to protect their property, their family, you know, their homes, their way of life. The leader of the group was a man named Gary Gilbert. And like a lot of people in United Citizens, Gilbert felt somehow the inner cities of Richmond and Oakland were moving in. There was those individuals that happened to come from economically disadvantaged areas of the Bay Area. They came to Antioch, and majority of them that were black, they were causing problems in the community. And I'm, you know, and I'm not ashamed to say that. Not ashamed, because Gilbert is black. I mean, it was an embarrassment to me as a black man to see that the vast majority of people that were causing problems in Antioch were black, because that was a reflection not only on them, but that was a reflection on me, too. I reached Gilbert by phone in Southern California, where he lives now. My view is, and has been and always will be, is that you had individuals that happened to be black that came out to the suburbs with that same gangster thug mentality, and they happened to be black and started terrorizing their neighbors and started terrorizing the community, and the community fought back. Gilbert says it didn't bother him when leaders from the black community accused him of betraying them for creating the citizens group. Gilbert wanted a safer community. He was willing to get involved, so he had to brush off some of the name-calling. He's an Uncle Tom. Uh, He's a sellout. He's a disgrace to the black community. I was called a house nigger and everything else that you can imagine under the sun. United Citizens had been called a racist group, something that Gilbert found laughable. That assumption was absolutely ridiculous. Gilbert told the growing membership of United Citizens not to let the issue of race hold them back. One thing that I always told individuals in UCBN that happen to be white is that you absolutely have to stop allowing yourselves to be subjected to white guilt. United Citizens turned to the one place they felt like they could go to get help. It's the place where most of their tax dollars go and the place they felt like had the most power, the police. And soon at the center of it all would be Antioch's new police chief, Jim Hyde. My name's uh, Jim Hyde. I'm a retired uh, police chief in the city of Antioch, my last city. Jim Hyde was hired in the summer of 2006, right in the middle of this tension and fury. Antioch was such a growing, emerging community, as a lot of the residents didn't know each other. You know, they they get that nice house in the neighborhood, they drive in and close down the garage door. Hyde looks like a police chief. He's a former football player, and he's tall, with this mustache. He's got confidence like a chief, but he's also just this gentle giant. Hyde and his wife were both working in law enforcement, and several cities were recruiting him, including Antioch. Antioch was the last city we visited, and uh, we sat down, we had lunch in their little downtown area that that really was, you know, you could see it needed a lot of love and attention. Um, And I said, so 
honey, where do you think I should, uh, I should work, apply to? And she says, Antioch. And I said, really? I said, you know, it's kind of a diamond in the rough. I mean, there's great potential here, but, and she says, because you can do the most good here. The city wanted Hyde to lead a special team of four officers called the Community Action Team, or the CAT Team. Its focus was neighbors and housing. Hyde worked with groups, including United Citizens, to flesh out where crime was happening. Sometimes the complaints would be for loud parties or fights, and there were extreme cases too, like the time someone was firing off a gun in their yard. But sometimes they weren't even complaints about crime at all. How much did the us versus them come into some of the complaints that the police department was was seeing? Because there's a lot of people who felt like, you know, people were, were you just getting false complaints. Yeah, were you getting false complaints? That were based on more prejudices and perceptions than actual reality. We we would receive false complaints, and the uh, the officers were pretty good at filtering out, saying, you know, there's nothing there, boss. Um, you know, we're going to move on to the next one. So our emphasis was document, and they did document. In the first year the CAT team operated, most of the complaints were about Section 8 homes on one side of town. The southeastern part of town, of, of, you know, Highway 4, they were concentrating so much on that area because they felt that the Section 8 people were bringing in all of these criminals and things. That's Willie Mims again with the regional NAACP. He says police were focused on the part of town with the new homes, the new high school, the new shopping mall rather than on the other part of town, which he says actually needed policing. The real criminals were moving into, setting up shop on Sycamore. Sycamore Street. It's still notorious. And it was the part of town that had more Section 8, more poverty, and historically, more crime. Willie claims the CAT team wasn't following the crime. They were following the complaints, acting like enforcers for white residents afraid of their new neighbors. He and fellow NAACP leader Charles Glasper say the way the CAT team presented themselves in a photo posted on the city's website, that sent a message too. They were white, white males in army fatigues. And then they had these big guns. Uh, what, what, what kind of guns they had? They had, they had? they had them betrayed on the website, and they yeah. finally took that down. Yeah, I mean, you know, that was uh, uh, way before Ferguson, you know, the big guns. I mean, yeah. The CAT team wasn't actually walking around the southeast neighborhoods wearing full camo. But Willie and Charles say the picture made them look more like an occupying force than community police. And in reality, it was women who bore the brunt. Black women on Section 8. Charles Glasper says they all had the same story about what would happen when police got called to their homes. The CAT team would show up. They would open the door, they would put their foot in the door, they pushed their way in, they handcuffed them, they would search the house, looking for a, um, a name of someone on the mail, on, on a letter, or they were looking for clothing, some kind of male clothing uh, that someone else lived there. Looking, Charles says, to see if they violated their Section 8 status. According to the NAACP, that was the point of the CAT team, to find reasons to evict black Section 8 residents from their homes. Here's what we do know. Antioch police were turning over names of people to the housing authority, claiming the renters, mostly black, should have their Section 8 status taken away. Overwhelmingly, the housing authority disagreed. Most African-American renters were found to have done nothing that would violate their Section 8 status. 
Chief Hyde defends his team. He says his officers were ethical and there was no plan to get rid of black residents. He says the southeast side of town was where most of the complaints came from, but there was reason for this. It had become known as the highest crime area in the city. It wasn't supposed to be like that. Hyde says it was a suburban utopia, so it just stung more that crime was surging there. Still, he acknowledges that some neighbors did stereotype. Do you think there was too much blaming of Section 8 residents? I think some residents wanted to blame everything on Section 8. And our message was it's that's one piece of the issue. The bigger piece is um, crime. So look at behavior and, and the facts around it. Were there ever times when people who didn't do anything wrong were, were targeted or blamed or that the police investigated and... Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And again, that's that perception piece, and that's why I think we can do a better job of educating our communities around culture. The depths of the tensions between old and new neighbors, poor and rich, black and white, they would surface in a series of unprecedented town meetings. Antioch called them quality of life forums. They would be held over the next three years, from 2006 to 2009, during the time the CAT team was operating. I really want to welcome everyone here. I think it's actually a good sign that we're trying to find spaces. At first, it was a lot of the established residents who showed up to talk about what to do about their changing neighborhoods. This is Christine. She's actually the wife of a police officer. She argued that people should do what the suburbs were known for, roll out the welcome mat. Do you know your next-door neighbor? Do you? Some people do not. When I moved into our subdivision, because we were all brand new and had no friends, we met everyone. And because we know Antioch is a transitional time, people are staying for two years and they're leaving, there's a lot of new people back in our neighborhood. Have you gone over to meet them? Yes, no, maybe. I don't know. I don't like what they drive. They look different than I do. Big deal. Go meet them. Go say hello. Another woman named Crystal points out for her that didn't work. When I told all of my neighbors that we were going on vacation, the teenagers at the end of the street used that opportunity to break into our home while we were gone. So I've had my mail stolen from my mailbox, which led to identity theft. I've twice been caught in a melee up in Deer Valley when I had my seven-year-old daughter with me. I don't even go to Knoll Park anymore because of the atmosphere up there. The meetings continued, public airings of real problems, Elected officials and residents who supported the CAT team would insist the issues playing out in public now were not about race. They said it was about behavior. This was repeated time and time again. It's about behavior, not race. Whether you're poor, whether you're rich, you're always welcome to live in this city if you are a law-abiding citizen. But be assured, if you come into the city and engage in criminal behavior, our citizens will report you and our police department will act upon those reports. That's all I got to say. Thank you very much. Over time, black residents and Section 8 residents began to show up at the meetings and speak up about what was happening to them. This is one of five wonderful letters that the citizens of Antioch would send us. 
You all haven't been in this house for two weeks and it looks like a dump. The screens are off while cutting your lawn. I don't know, that's a misprint on his side. Just load up, load up the U-Haul and go back to Richmond or Oakland. You don't belong in Antioch. And the women who accused the CAT team of targeting them, they came forward too to testify that they felt like they were being pushed out, not just with letters, but by force. When I asked the CAT team why they were entering my home and why they were rummaging through my drawers and closet, I was told by one officer to shut up or they would detain me by putting me in one of their police cars. People who can sit here and say that it has nothing to do with race, really need to take off those blinders and get an education, get educated on the facts. That's all I have to say. Thank you. I'm a law-abiding citizen. I do nothing but work and pay my bills. I gave up my Section 8 because of the stress and the pain that it was causing me. But just to let you know, I still stay in that same very home, and I'm not going nowhere. Some of the women who spoke that night were those who fought to keep their homes. A group of them would file a civil rights lawsuit against the city, claiming the CAT team was discriminating against them and trying to drive them out of town. The lawsuit was eventually settled. Some of the women left Antioch, some of them stayed. One woman we spoke with who did stay is still afraid of Antioch police. The city never admitted any fault. Both sides claimed they'd won. But the police were under the eye of the federal government for three years. As for the CAT team, it disbanded in 2009. The official reason, the recession hit. Antioch would end up cutting about 45% of its sworn police officers. Within two years, Chief Jim Hyde would leave the department and leave the city. If the recession had not occurred, it had been lighter than what it was, I may still be working there. I loved Antioch. I loved the community. I loved the department. I loved the people doing the work. So the, the regret is leaving. Gary Gilbert, the leader of the United Citizens Group, he also eventually left Antioch. We left like many of our friends um, and good law-abiding citizens did. They, they abandoned. They got out of Antioch. The United Citizens Group also disbanded. Donna Wilson says the crime and the mood in the city hasn't gotten any better, but she also says it hasn't gotten any worse. She tells me, in the end, the bad guys won. When I ask her who the bad guys are, she says it depends on who you ask. But to her, it was anyone who doesn't care about making Antioch a better place for all. The responsibility of belonging isn't really created by the city. I think it's, it's more of a community. It starts with the community. It starts understanding who your neighbors are, getting to, to know them. What happened 10 years ago changed people's lives. It changed Armand Ellis's life. He's the young man who got expelled from Deer Valley High School, the one who sued the city. The city would settle that lawsuit, but never admit wrongdoing. And the lawsuit, it took time. Getting a little bit of money, I mean, that's always good, but at the same time, it wasn't gonna change or bring back some of the things that I definitely missed out on. Things as simple as just being a teenager in Antioch and graduating with his class. 
there was a more lasting impact. Dierman never felt comfortable going back to Deer Valley High, and he never got a degree from an accredited high school. It just sucks. You no, know, we didn't do nothing. I didn't get to go to prom. I didn't get to do none of that. I didn't get to graduate on stage. He's got an electrician apprenticeship coming up this summer. It's another chance for him. But the real question is, has Antioch been able to go forward, to heal all these racial divides, to welcome new neighbors into the fold? To find out, you have to keep listening. It was chapter one of American Suburb here on Queued Up. I'm John Sepulveda. So I got a question for you before our next episode. Have you heard the name Najee Harris? Well, if you haven't, you should know. He's the country's number one high school football recruit. The hood people, like the gang, like the people drug dealing stuff, they always come to me and say, man, I'm hearing a lot of stuff about you. They always tell me to do the opposite of what they're doing. Like, they use them as an example. Like, don't be like me, man. Look, like, they show me like people getting shot, like all their wounds and stuff like that. You don't want to be here, man. Get out of here and make a name for us. Now, football is going to get Najee out of Antioch, but the school principal has another goal in mind. Get football to help rally town support for Antioch High. You can hear our next chapter of American Suburb by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts.